Howdy, dear listeners. You are listening to The Slavic Connection. This is your host, Matt. Today, I am joined by Maria Smegavaya. Maria is a postdoctoral fellow at Virginia Tech University and a fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. We had a fantastic conversation. We talked about these recent local elections in Russia and kind of what they mean going forward, what are the main insights that we can glean. We also talked about the Navalny poisoning, what this means for Navalny's stature. And we finished by talking about Belarus, how we got to where we are, how this situation might resolve itself and when Russia might have its Belarus moment. So I think you'll really enjoy. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Maria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So there's a lot going on in our region, as we were talking about, but I think the natural place to start is these regional elections in Russia that just concluded. And uh, Navalny did have some successes in Tomsk and in Novosibirsk, but in other places like Tatarstan, which is a kind of a wealthier and more educated place, he was still not very successful at all. So just in general, what are, what are the big takeaways from these elections for you? This year, the elections they went actually local, on the, held on the local level. So we're talking regional assemblies, city council, and elections of the governors of Russia's regions. Typically, the sort of type of elections that people would really not notice. They would go unnoticed, most likely, precisely because it's not the federal level. And as we know, in Russia, things tend to happen in Moscow. But it's important because uh, this year in particularly is a culmination of several years in a row uh, throughout which the social economic situation in Russia kept getting worse and support for Putin and um, the authorities kept declining. The trend accelerated, especially in summer 2018, uh, when the Kremlin passed this uh, very unpopular retirement agent increase, and so Putin's uh, rating collapsed. So why do we care? I would say that uh, the results are based on uh, September 13th, generally mixed. They're not as great, uh, you know, for the position. They're not as great for the Kremlin either. So the first important finding or takeaway is that the Kremlin learned the lesson fo- that followed 2018. In 2018, as I mentioned, there was this unpopular agent, uh, retirement agent reform, which really influenced support for the Kremlin. And as a result, the Kremlin appointees in four regions failed to win the elections in the first round, which by the Kremlin standard is a big failure, because typically in the second round of the runoff, the opposition mobilizes against the second candidate who made it to the runoff, and the Kremlin appointees tend to win. And uh, a lot of people, as I mentioned, expected that this uh, year will sort of comparable to 2018 because of the coronavirus pandemic, the really big collapse in uh, consumer approval ratings, as well as the economy overall. And yet, the Kremlin has been able to re-elect all of the 18 uh, regional governors who were elected uh, on September 13 through the direct election. So the, all of the Kremlin appointees for these positions were uh, re-elected. But it's important to keep in mind that this has been done through the unprecedented series of electoral manipulations and falsifications. Among big things, for example, the Kremlin has in a completely unprecedented move, even for Russia's imperfect electoral legislation. For example, they extended the voting to three days instead of one. And uh, it's usually the case that the 
observers are only able to monitor one day, uh, typically Sunday. While essential on Friday, Saturday, you can do all kind of applications and violations you wish. There were many other electoral legislations and changes that were introduced during the summer, which actually have resulted in the, what some observers have described as the worst electoral legislation in the last 25 years in Russia, and we're joking Russia, right? So the record already <laughs> isn't perfect. Yeah. So it's safe to say that the falsifications are actually even getting worse and worse. Oh, they're getting worse and worse. And these are probably some of the dirtiest elections in Russian history. Sergei Spilkin, uh, Russia's electoral statistician, who always uh, does a fantastic job of estimating approximately the share of falsification, says that wasn't it for uh, these new changes and uh, the associated increasing falsifications. Uh we could we would have probably seen the results similar to 2018. So mm-hmm. again, none of the Kremlin's appointees would have been able to get reelected. Most importantly, however, in this election, Navalny's team has also tried the smart voting strategy. It's uh, the strategy to elect uh, in majoritarian districts to elect the strongest to unite around to, to unite the opposition support around the candidate that the, the strongest challenger to the Kremlin's appointee. Just to remind the audience not to bore you with you know a difficult technical detail, it's typically the case that for the authoritarian uh, leaders, it's easier to elect um, its appointees from majoritarian rather than proportional election. Because majoritarian system, essentially candidate runs, he doesn't have to announce that uh, he's backed by he or she is backed by the Kremlin. So United Russia, the Kremlin's party, is very unpopular in the country, and so many of its candidates run in majoritarian districts without publicly announcing that they're running on behalf of the United Russia or the Kremlin. So people come, they see this face, it's a familiar face because there's a lot of administrative resource, it's advertised everywhere, and they're like, okay, hey, why not vote for him? It's a new face after all. And eventually when this person makes it to the parliament, it turns out that it was actually associated to the ground. So in order to essentially, as a counter move, uh, the Navalny's team create the smart voting campaign, where they analyze the election based on some existing polls and data and how active the candidate is in his or her district or region. They recommend the, most, the strongest candidate. And several days before the election, they publish this list and ask voters, position-minded voters, to back these particular candidates, not to allow, allow the Kremlin appointee to win. And so this is the first year when Navalny's team has tried this approach on regional election. They did uh, really an amazing job. They analyzed the thousands of uh, candidates. It's a lot of work. And eventually ended up recommending about 1,200 candidates. So they recommend 1,200 candidates. Imagine how many they had to, you know, browse through. say that the results are somewhat uh, reassuring because keep in mind the only team that is persecuted you know they don't have many resources russia is an enormous enormous country I'm, I'm, i still can get over how big it is myself all the time <laughs> it's, it's really it's it's really hard to you know make sense of everything is going on and so eventually about 10 percent of this uh, about 100 candidates that the navalny's uh, campaign recommended have been able to make it uh, to city parliaments uh, and regional parliaments of different levels, primarily in the big cities. This uh, campaign has been successful. 
So isn't that's not bad. It's not perfect, of course, but it definitely shows that there is something to it. There is strength uh, behind it. And of course, in bigger cities where Navalny's team has bigger coverage and stronger support, like Moscow last year, this campaign proved quite successful. Just a reminder for to our candidate that in Moscow state elections in 2019, this smart voting campaign almost took half of the eventual uh, parliament's composition. Unfortunately, they, they sort of ran short of 50% of candidates, but still, it was a really big success. Of course, I mean, it may seem sort of marginal for our listeners, in a democratic polity, of course, 10% of candidates may not be such an impressive number. But remember, we are talking about Russia. Uh, given this very hostile environment, these results are promising. Right. And so given that this was a kind of a moderate success, we should expect that smart voting is not dead, that smart voting will be used in other elections and the Navalny team is not going to get rid of it. Because I know the, the problem that they have is that they there are these inevitable fights within the liberal opposition about, oh, why didn't you, why are you supporting the communist and not our good liberal candidate? And they always have to tell them, no, it's because unfortunately, you know, the communist candidate is more popular. But you think despite those yeah. conflicts that it still has legs, as we say, it will still kind of go on. It's a really generational divide. For me, really, it's hard to understand what's the problem with Beckin, a communist leader. If it's not a complete monster, if he doesn't act like, Children, you know, so to speak, Kyoshi, Oda, he, given, you know, Russia's politics, does not really have high representation of women. So in this situation, yeah, it's a, it's a strategy. It's a tactic. Because a tactic, unfortunately, out of, if the, in the position of weakness, in a situation where your preferred, really bright, opposition-minded, committed candidates are not allowed to run at best and maybe, you know, jailed or even, I know, uh, beaten up at worst. In this situation, yes, uh, it's important to unite around the second worst, you know. The politics is the art of possibilities, I think, is right. out of the possible. And yeah, it's also true that some, some critics say, for example, okay, so you've got this communist guy, you know, he has these crazy policies, but also he makes it to the parliament and he eventually immediately you know, sort of sides with the Kremlin, announces that he will join the United Party or backs his, the Kremlin policies. So well, what's the point? Why are you doing all this? So first of all, I would say that it's better to do than not to do anything at all. And as I said, we are facing a hostile environment which aims to demobilize any opposition action. So any effort of mobilizing an opposition, mobilizing your supporters, building this support network, is very helpful in the future because who knows uh, what's going to happen next? Look at Belarus, you know, who could imagine anything like this happen a year ago? So first of all, it's a very useful mobilizing, uh, you know, tool that the position uh, develops, practices, expands. That's useful. Second of all, it's important to keep in mind how the Kremlin system operates. It's based on pre-existing agreements. So yeah, they make it to the parliament, so like everything is under control, but it, that's how it looks to us. On the surface, from inside, however, the Kremlin like has all these pools and perks within the system that redistributed in advance under very again sophisticated networks of arrangement, not to you know not to offend Ivan Ivanovich, and to also remember <laughs> that Nikanor uh, Petrovich also has a stake in that. And this it's it's a really delicate balance of satisfying different interests within the system, not to piss off people who are your allies. And the smart voting campaign disrupts 
those arrangements. You already promised uh, Ivan Ivanovich this position in Nikanor Petrovich, that position. All of a sudden, none of them made it to the parliament, and you can't really let them in anymore. So there's a formal rules after all, and some there have some relationship to that. Now you have to renegotiate with the new new, new candidates, and who knows what they will demand. Etc. Etc. So that actually, ultimately, that's an approach that disrupts the existing arrangements that the Kremlin has within the system, and it's it's a big blow to the Kremlin. And we know it's a big blow because the Kremlin attacks people who are invo- involved in the smart voting campaign. No, absolutely. I, I'm of the same opinion, and we've actually seen examples like in the, in the Moscow City Duma, where people from the Communist Party, once they get into their office, they right, they do kind of shake things up and really rub people the wrong way, which I think is good. To add one more potentially optimistic note to this topic, and then and then we'll move on. I know that you have some research that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about it and where we can find it? Because I'm, I know that's something that will be interesting to me and, and our listeners certainly. So that has to do with uh, you know the changing electorates of the Russian society and the broader question about why are we doing everything that we're doing. It's that, you know, people who are engaged in this uh, smart voting campaign, they are optimists. They think that Russian society is not doomed. It's not destined to forever elect uh, and re-elect Putin or even monsters, uh, leaders on top of the country. Although I have to say that the record isn't great. I will accept that. And the society is changing. So this is the report that SIPA uh, uh, ran together with Levada Center. We, it's a, the largest independent polling company in Russia. We developed a survey that focused on civic and political engagement of the Russian youth. The youth uh, broadly defined 16 to 34 years old. Small confession, I unfortunately no longer fit. <laughs> a, big, a, big, a big drama, personal drama of mine. And we, uh, we actually uh, see a look at factors that distinguish uh, these age groups from older, from older generations, and also what ex- the factors that explain an variation in political and civic engagement within this group. So it's not a not a secret, I think, for our audience that Navalny's uh, support is definitely disproportionately driven from younger uh, generations. There is uh, activists in Navalny's offices who work for him and other position leaders, not just Navalny. There's also uh, independent businessmen and investors who fund uh, the campaign because the whole campaign uh, operates for crowdfunding, as a lot of independent projects in Russia uh, do these days. So we actually have some very interesting results. Uh, so first of all, uh, we know that the younger generation is much more, so to speak, modernized uh, than the older age groups, in the sense that they are more pro-Western, more pro-democratic, less paternalistic, uh, have higher respect for human rights and minority rights uh, as well. If you might remember, Matt, a couple of years ago after Crimea and uh, the Russia's incursion in Ukraine has happened, uh, people spoke of so-called Putin generation. There were some surveys that have demonstrated that uh, younger people in Russia are even more supportive. Yes, yes. That's no longer true. And the um, change has been really abrupt. It happened around 2016, 17. As a matter of fact, these days, young generations are the least supportive of Putin and the Kremlin system uh, more broadly. Uh, So there's a potential there. Uh, My personal feeling is that probably younger age group, because they are on the internet, you know, the biggest divide, uh, the biggest difference from the older generation is the fact that they're disproportionately receiving the information from the internet and social networks. And the information that is there is freer by definition than on federal TV channels which is the main uh, information source for all the age groups. So this, uh, these younger groups probably are on top of major developments. They sort of, they change faster. You know, they less uh, have less inertia in their attitudes and preferences, so to speak. 
And so this definitely holds certain potential, especially given that some studies have shown in, that in the recent years, um, uh, young Russian, Russians have become more active in the protests uh, and um, uh, politically. I have to say, we don't have that evidence, unfortunately. I wish we had that. But so far, it seems that the change, you know, in terms of the political preferences has not fully converted into a qualitative change in their behavior, uh, so to speak. It's very common to have this dialogue with a young Russian person. You know, hey, everything looks horrible. These uh, monsters are taking the country in the totally wrong direction. And uh, oh my God. And then you ask, and then you ask this, him or her like, hey, okay, that's that's totally right. But do you, are you personally engaged in any sort, in any way to, in order to influence the change? And like, okay, oh wow. You know, I've never, never thought of it. Are there, what can I do? So this is a very typical conversations I and my friends have been having with a lot of our uh, friends in Russia. That's And looking at Belarus and also Armenia, Ukraine, you know, many other countries in the post-Soviet region, we see that eventually it, it actually culminates, contributes to certain type of change. Uh, the other interesting finding that we have in our report that it not, it's not just internet that affects this uh, variation in uh, civic and political engagement. It's also something that we call openness to the world. That is, uh, young Russians who are more uh, engaged with the outside world in the sense that they travel abroad, travel, talk to their peers, not foreign languages, and like communicate with their peers in foreign languages. And by the way, it doesn't have to be Europe or the United States, but even the um, foreign, uh, former post-Soviet space, even if they travel there, it still affects the levels of civic and political engagement. It seems like if you travel abroad, you sort of, it changes something about you, the way the way you see the world. I personally saw it hap- happen to a group of uh, young students from Russia. Back in 2018, I was with them and they came from Russia and were quite, um, you know, they pro-Putin, pro sort of, not, not particular position-minded, so to speak. And I saw they communicate with the U.S. peers, you know, we organized a bunch of sort of parties, uh, networking events, uh, saw them, you know, travel around D.C., also see how nice it is, frankly. And I was surprised to see how, how different they've become from a very short trip, just a week. And they were like, okay, wow, these Americans don't really hate us. Uh, these uh, students are... Just like us, we listen to the same music, we watch the same movies. They connected really easily, you know, with their American peers. And it was really, frankly, quite fun. And it was my personal experience just looking at that, you know, this dynamic from the outside. I really saw that being um, a big factor. So from this perspective, I think um, one big policy takeaway from this report is that these exchange programs really seem to work quite well. Unfortunately, the Kremlin is also aware of that, so it effectively banned quite a few of uh, state-run exchange programs um, in the last uh, decade. That's such fascinating research, and it has direct implications for a lot of research that I'm doing also about the youth and the role of civic education in changing these these young attitudes and mindsets. So we're, we're all eagerly waiting for it to come out. I think The next topic we need to touch on is this Navalny poisoning. Just to kind of a quick update on some of the facts for our viewers, Navalny was poisoned on on the plane coming from Omsk to Moscow, and he was evacuated to Germany. It appeared as though authorities were trying to delay his evacuation. They, of course, found the military nerve agent Novichok. 
More recently, we've seen this very interesting information campaign from the Russian state where I believe the the Russian, I don't know exactly who it was, but they released these nine questions for the European parliament. And so we see, now we see the, how the Kremlin is pushing back in the information space. Do you think that the Kremlin's messaging on this has been effective? Are they convincing anybody, foreign or domestic? Oh, yeah. No, honestly, I think this is... This may as well be one of the least successful disinformation campaigns that the Kremlin runs. Uh, so first of all, the pardon is very similar, right? We've seen it happen after Ukraine. We've seen it happen after this horrendous revelations followed the Olympic uh, Games scandal and this whole, you know, doping uh, scandal. Again, uh, we see that the pardons are the same. And I've started disinformation in the past. So what they're trying to do, it seems, is to create the so-called noise. They flood the uh, information environment with multiple alternatives, so to speak, theories. Hey, Navalny actually had a diabetes, or, I don't know, Navalny has been poisoned by his lover, who, (laughs) I don't know, for some reason, uh, poisoned him, not his wife, or whatever the logic uh, should be there, or something along those lines. And in the situation where the evidence is overwhelming, uh, by the way, part of the evidence, as we just learned yesterday, has been uh, received through the absolutely amazing effort of Navalny's own uh, uh, team, uh, the Foundation of Corruption team, who went into this uh, hotel room after they learned that he's been poisoned. They still were at the same hotel in Tomsk. After the, his, uh, the plane with Navalny's uh, po- poisoned Navalny on board landed in Omsk, and they went to this hotel room and found uh, some evidence, including a bottle of water, which allegedly contained this uh, element of Navichok. And it's important that the body apparently sort of tends to metabolize this poison, and it's harder to identify this poison after certain times has passed. But the bottle did not metabolize it, obviously, and contained this element which helped the Germans uh, to identify uh, this element. So I have to say it's also among other things. It's not just Navalny, who's absolutely great and amazing, but also kudos to his fantastic team. Brave, courageous, also willing to sacrifice himself because we're talking about a deadly poison. So in this sense, and uh, the evidence is overwhelming since the start, honestly, to me and many other uh, Russia watchers, it's been obvious that this sort of things can only be linked to the Kremlin. Navalny is too important and remained, you know, sort of under certain type of cover for many years, despite a huge number of people that he pissed off <laughs> for his uh, corruption investigations. Uh, fantastic work. And yet uh, he uh, he suffered. His, his brother was arrested. He personally um, had uh, suffered from several attacks. But uh, still not as badly as you could assume, given the nature of Russia's regime. That suggested that there was a certain type of order from the top that probably prevented some, so to speak, uh, serious people from attacking Navalny. Somehow this order has been lifted in August. I think that actually is a, a sign of, again, an ongoing uh, degradation of the regime, unfortunately, not in the great direction. But the, 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 the links to the Kremlin have been obvious from the start to me, but not from any other, you know, observers who maybe not follow uh, Russia as closely. You, you know, this, it's, it's possible it might have been someone else, maybe like lower level, crazy FSB guy who will, pro- will probably get fired after that. But OK, let's assume this possibility. Once this Navichok story has been revealed, any alternative theories uh, are gone. Uh, there's absolutely no other possibility other than the Kremlin being directly implicated in this uh, poisoning because this uh, agent, the nerve agent Navichok, can only be produced using the state facilities. It cannot really be kept uh, for a long time and requires, uh, and this sort of operation requires a very serious engagement of the security services. And everything that, Nav- uh, that the Russian propaganda is doing these days 
the fact that they didn't start any investigation of the poisoning despite the overwhelming evidence and you know and multiple demands the fact that they kept denying the poisoning itself for quite, uh, several weeks only recently started acknowledging that the poisoning took uh, place you know this whole uh, campaign of disinformation is uh, suggesting other people or even foreign security services somehow implicated in Navalny poisoning. They, they went as far as to suggest uh, that the Germany poisoned Navalny himself once he was delivered. This all suggests that the government is directly implicated. Yeah, absolutely. And what's been really funny about the response to me is it directly mirrors all of the stereotypes about their propaganda, right? We know that RT's motto is question more. And what yeah. did they send to the European Parliament? Not their version, a single version of events. It's a list of questions, right? Not It's just question more, question more. One absolutely hysterical question which a lot of observers have pointed attention to, why would the Russian authorities allegedly poison Navalny if his electoral support did not exceed 2% of population? First of all, that implies that if it, if his electoral support was more than 2% or any other political leader for that matter. So then it's okay to poison uh, such a political leader. That's also this, you know, the, the way they talk about that is also very revealing because it's it's a ridiculous question. Yes. And for our listeners who are interested, there was a, a great post on Live Journal by Maxim Mironov where he kind of just breaks apart all of these theories. We'll, we'll, we'll post it in, in the description. I, I want to ask, what does this mean for Navalny going forward? I mean, I think if the, in the past, he was like a, a notable Soviet dissident for a lot of the international audience in the past. Like, I don't know, like a Sakharov or something. Now you get the sense that he he's elevating to the level of like a Nelson Mandela. What do you think about that, both internationally and domestically? What does this mean for kind of his popularity and image? I'd say that uh, Navalny was much more efficient than your average Russian and Soviet dissident, because those are fantastic people, by the way. I just finished uh, Bukovsky's biography, uh, and I just uh, cannot uh, you know, emphasize how amazing perceptive he is and frankly how most of the things he talks about are still 100% relevant for today's Russia, even if his book was written back in the 1970s. Unfortunately, it just shows the continuity of the regime. But uh, Bukowski was not a politician, nor were uh, many of the dissidents. Navalny's strength, it's not just his moral, you know, level and courage, but also, frankly, his effectiveness. Uh, given the limited resources he possesses and a relatively small team, they've been remarkably uh, effective in uh, producing these uh, investigations that are hurtful to the point, very hurtful for uh, the crown, very high quality journalism. Navalny has also built the biggest media resource among the opposition leaders in the country, a resource that a lot of people sort of try to get access uh, to because we're talking millions of people. And of course, the first of the uh, opposition leaders to build a network of offices across Russia, which uh, operates nicely and uh, which is one of the reasons why the smart voting success campaign works. It works better in the regions which have these offices of Navalny. So he also spreads, he also does not just focus on Russia, on Moscow only, which um, most of the opposition leaders uh, tend to do, but he also spreads across Russia. So he is, he's also efficient. He's not just a dissident, he's also a very, very efficient politician. One can only imagine what he can achieve if he had a little bit more resources uh, than he currently gets. And the Kremlin's correctly scared by the same question. So what does it mean uh, for him going forward? So first of all, if there was any fairness, you know, Navalny deserved to become the president of future Russia. 
he really has suffered and he really has achieved tremendous amount of things, more than any of us can hope, you know, in 10 lives and the things he has done uh, for the country. Uh, and also another thing that unites him with uh, Nelson Mandela, recently a number of professors in the United States um, nominated Navalny for the Nobel Prize. Yes, and, yes. And Mandela, we know, won uh, the Nobel Award. But other than that, unfortunately, uh, looking at what's going on in um, Russia and uh, closest examples, like for example, Belarus, right? We know that the regime is not going anywhere in the near future. As a matter of fact, increasingly, it becomes more and more clear that, uh, you know, we like the food may be a present of our lifetime. Unfortunately, medicine is really good these days, for better or worse. But in this situation, Putin will stay in power as long as he can. And even the widespread countrywide protests are not enough to remove such a political leader. It's not just Belarus, but also Venezuela, who show such examples. The current situation is great in terms of exposure of Navalny. He sort of character almost like Neo in the Matrix. He almost dies, but then eventually reemerges from that near-death experience is a stronger, more powerful character. It's a really, it's really quite amazing. This really becomes a Hollywood uh, yes. movie. Yeah. Uh, like, plot. like the phoenix rising from the ashes. Yeah. It, yeah, it's a very typical, you know, archetype, so to speak, but also a very, very, very clear Hollywood singer. His, uh, his influence internationally definitely has increased. And uh, recently, the European Parliament has even suggested that uh, the new sanctions list based on the investigations of uh, Navalny's team, which makes him a really influential international leader. I mean, in the past, of course, the past list of sanctions sort of relied on uh, these investigations and some suggestions, of course, uh, by opposition leaders in Russia, including Navalny. But uh, this this actually takes him to the level of official international recognition and the maybe second most important, important person in Russia after Putin. Absolutely. And uh, I even heard the phrase that I'm sure sends shivers up the spine of the Kremlin, which is we, we have Magnitsky sanctions, but now even in the U.S. somebody brought up possible Navalny sanctions. And it hasn't moved very far or detailed yet, but I think that if that becomes a normal idea, then, I mean, if he gets that kind of reputation, that international resonance, then that's something that's going to be very scary. The very fact of it, yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't mean that the game is over for the Kremlin. We're talking about very vicious, sort of crazy, I would say, somewhat crazy people who are on top of the Kremlin system. The reason why, it's actually quite rational and not stupid at all. But they, they tend to operate under their own framework. They see the world in a very particular way. They, for example, are convinced that everything that's going on behind another is a plot of foreign security services, right? That people will never rise by themselves. They have to be backed by, I don't know, CIA or MI, MI5. So Navalny is facing potentially even more serious risks. The bigger and more important he becomes uh, in the eyes of the Kremlin. So the, the, the more international recognized he is, in some ways, is a protection, it's a cover, of course. Uh, because there are serious implications for the Kremlin doing more uh, horrible things against Navalny and his friends and family. But there's also more incentives for the Kremlin uh, to do that. And that's important to keep in mind. The, the game is not over by far. And as the recent indicator of such a development, for example, some of the Kremlin-linked uh, spoke, uh, spokesmen started to raise the possibility that uh, Navalny's friends and relatives, for example, may now face criminal charges for this bottle 
So the very bottle that we have discussed uh, with trace of poisonous substance, they took out from Russia. You're not supposed to take this. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, I saw that. The Peskov, you stole the evidence. <laughs> yeah, and that adds a direct threat. If you come back, it's not going to be you. It's not just you that is going to suffer, but also your relatives and friends. So they're already studying this. In this sense, uh, Navalny will probably come back. I mean, everything we know about him suggested that he will come back, and that's definitely a very courageous move. But unfortunately, yeah, it means that we'll likely, he'll likely face even more uh, threats and challenges than uh, before. Things are going to get ugly, you know, before they improve. Sure. Let's see if that same principle holds to Belarus. I want to talk about your piece that came out recently in the in, in the Washpo monkey cage. And I believe it's uh, based on some of your research about how Russia conducts a more aggressive foreign policy when the economy is good and oil prices are high. And when they're not, then they're going to be much more reluctant to get in, involved in, in foreign adventures because the domestic support is less. I mean, do, do you see a scenario for how this Belarus situation could escalate and Russia could get more involved? Or do you think that that's pretty out of the question? Yeah, I'm really very interested in this sort of political economy of international aggression. And in this sense, as, as a Russian, you know, uh, we've been taught to think of ourselves as a country with unique, you know, culture, history and whatnot, that this is uh, a culture of uh, sort of similar to the American exceptionalism within culture, within Russia domestically, which in the Russian case, I have to say, I think much less justified. At the same time, looking at the foreign policy behavior of the Russian state, it really does not come out as exceptional at all, but it looks very much like a typical petrostate. Petrostate, a country whose state revenues are to a large extent shaped by hydrocarbonates, like oil or gas uh, revenues. And those countries, because this money is rent, oil rent, is sort of very easy to get. It does not require really labor and taxation from the population uh, to get. It gets emboldened, the leaders in these uh, petro-states, and as a result, the foreign policy behavior of these uh, leaders becomes quite reckless and too overly assertive during the, the times when oil prices are high. And essentially, this research is the continuation of the same argument that, yeah, in Russia, you sort of see the same pattern. Uh, in the past, I've also shown that Putin's rhetoric, foreign policy rhetoric, is also associated to oil prices so in the sense when uh, Oil prices are higher. Putin is also more aggressive uh, internationally, controlling for other factors um, that may explain this behavior. In the Soviet Union, the situation was exactly the same. Afghanistan invasion, for example, has happened at the peak of oil prices, and uh, there are studies that show that actually traces the discussion in Politburo and shows how change in the oil prices, the rise in revenue, sort of changed changed the perspective on these things. And yeah, it's, it's really fascinating and I would encourage uh, interested members of our audience to continue this research. But in the, this particular paper, I talk about uh, the attitudes of the population. Essentially, you can think of an international escalation as being a, another option in the number of um, you know, goods that are available to Russians. It's cool, your presence goes abroad and invades other countries, but it's also expensive because you need to fund it from your own sort of money, from your own wallet. And so, essentially, the survey shows when the, when the Russians are told that the economy is doing worse, they will be less inclined to support the international aggression. And I particularly apply this argument to Belarus situation. Right now, this things, as I mentioned before, not great in Russia. There is an economic crisis linked to the pandemic, but it also happens against the backdrop of maybe six-year decline in real disposable income since stagnation of the economy. 
So Russians really are not very happy to share with uh, brother other brotherly nations, so to speak, to protect the other brotherly nations when things aren't as great domestically. Of course, Russia Russia is an autocracy, right? So Putin really only cares to some extent about what Russians think. Some people would say he doesn't care at all. I don't think that's true. The presidential administration actually is very much uh, reliant on polls. The polls are run by multiple entities all the time. So there is an element of popular support in there still. And so in this sense, it will create the sort of audience cost or the sort of cost that will constrain the Kremlin's international behavior. I think that's one of the reasons why the Kremlin has been helping Lukashenko in a sort of quote-unquote hybrid ways. A money, uh, a credit offered uh, to Lukashenko. There was um, this propagandist, uh, state-level state propagandist sent uh, from Russia to Belarus who are also strike breakers. They um, they continued the work of the Belarus TV channels, state TV channels, when other journalists refused to do that. There's also maybe some non-insignia security officers from Russia and Belarus. There were some rumors circulating about that. There's no uh, direct proof. So yeah, that's a constraint, and that's good news for Belarusian people, I have to say, because that means that the Kremlin's intervention into Belarus will be limited in size. Right. So on the one hand, it, it's unpopular, and the Russian people don't like this idea of sending all of this money to support these other, from Venezuela to you know other uh, dictatorships. But on the other hand, there was a really interesting piece in Novaya Gazeta about how since 2005, Russia has spent $100 billion supporting Belarus. And so my question is, do Russian people realize that, oh my gosh, $100 billion, that could pay for new hospitals and playgrounds and <laughs> across all of Russia? Do people realize that that's money that is not going to them? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think they fully realize that. Part of the problem, the information access, right, that's as we discussed before, all the generations continue to rely on um, state federal TV channels as a main information source. And of course, the state federal TV channels are not going to say, hey, Putin has wasted all of our money. No, he's going to, they're going to say there's probably support provided to this other uh, country suffering from the international aggression and the hostile West that tries to create another color revolution and whatnot. Yes. And the, of course, the other element is also the lack of civic mindedness, right? Linking this back to this previous discussion of this youth study that we've done. Yes, in a lot of ways, people do do not directly connect their money to whatever is going on on the uh, state level. Understanding that there's no taxation without representation takes time. And uh, particularly in the country like Russia, as I mentioned before, which is a petro state, that means that many of the state endeavors are funded technically not from the taxes, but from this uh, oil revenues, which are still taxes and directly still uh, people's taxes, but people don't understand that uh, because of the structure of the taxation system. Yeah, they don't immediately connect what's going on with their personal money to what's going on on the federal level. Uh, things are changing, and uh, hopefully there is more awareness about, um, you know, there's a spread of education and more awareness of the things. Hopefully they will ultimately come there. It's also important, some analysts have suggested that uh, in the future democratic Russia, if it was to happen, it would be important to reform the taxation system that people immediately see exactly how much they pay to fund, the, to fund those state actions and make this connection directly. Yes, that's a, that's a very funny moment because I have Russian friends would ask me, Matt, why do people like it that 
you go to the store and it says one price, but then when you go to the checkout, it's a different price. That's that's such a big pain. Why do you like that? And I have to explain to them that it's it's so that you feel you know when you're paying the taxes, but it's a very strange concept. That's a very good point, by the way. I have to say to me as a Russian, it was still weird. But now that you put it this way, yeah, I understand that it's actually a perfect point. And I never realized myself just goes to show that even when you study these things, you never totally incorporate the importance that they have. When these Belarus protests started, uh, a Russian political scientist, Yekaterina Shulman, she said, this is our 2024. The idea being that something like this could happen in Russia. Do, do you see a scenario where something like what we're seeing in Belarus could happen in Russia? And, and what would it take? Yekaterina is a great uh, scholar and always on the positive side, not just a scholar, but also somewhat a psychological therapist a little bit because she tends to view things positively and I I hope I could agree with her and it's somewhat what we used to think it's true some time ago as I mentioned before yes the Russian society is changing and a lot of people say that given the accumulation of socioeconomic circumstances the sanctions uh, that it's as clear right now following the international response to Navalny's poisoning are not going to be removed in any near future and there might be more sanctions coming this all does not vote well for the Putin's regime. Yeah, there, there, will, there will be electoral consequences and people will grow uh, unhappy. But I also have to say that in the recent months, Russians have been unfortunately quite apathetic. They, they were less active than what you'd expect uh, given the accumulation of all these circumstances. Like, for example, the extension of uh, presidential terms, the constitutional amendments that were passed in uh, July did not uh, provoke mass response in the streets, despite the fact that a lot of people were quite unhappy with it. Honestly, that's probably one of the first signs of the discontent. Like very few people in Russia openly embraced those amendments and very few said that they wanted Putin to stay that long. Uh, Second, uh, of course, the second event is Navalny poisoning. Again, there was a remarkable lack of uh, public action, you know, frustration. I was surprised. I thought there would be more protests or backlash or something. It's important also to remember that actually public protests are effectively banned in Russia at this moment under pretext of pandemic. And there's huge fines that will follow if you were to organize such a protest. In 2019, if you remember, in Moscow, there were large protests when uh, several independent candidates were not allowed in Moscow state parliament election. And uh, as a result, Navalny, his team, among other positions, face huge fines, and they're still repaying those. It's just to show you the size of those fines. They're, they're, quite, they're quite bad. I think that was one of the reasons why there were no protests. But some people say, okay, they were just waiting until September 13. This is when it will sort of culminate in huge uh, demonstrations and um, rallies uh, because people just can't hold it all together, but they'll wait until there's evidence for mass, mass falsification. So guess what? We are now uh, September 18, five more days after the elections and still no protests. This is some kind of apathy that's spreading around the country. I think that's in part associated to the coronavirus and economic crisis. So everyone is also in this looking for other options mode. Uh, You know, they need to make the ends meet rather than go out in the streets. But there's also unfortunately a fact that Russia is not quite a civically engaged society. And also there's a horrible legacy of the Soviet times where people essentially were demobilized by multiple repressions. The the protest propensity uh, is growing, but it's not quite there yet. And also the other fact that also demonstrates by um, the Lukashenko example demonstrate. There was this implicit assumption in uh, Russia that, okay, things will not change uh, as long as there's like 20,000 to 60,000 industries. 
But once like 500,000 go in the streets in Moscow, it, it will be the end of Putin's regime. It will be obvious. If you have a million essentially across Russia in the streets, it's, it's obvious that it's, all, it's the end of the system. And yet in Belarus, we don't necessarily see that happening, right? We see that the, uh, right. the dictator survives, even if he's widely unpopular, he still uh, preserves the control of the security apparatus and the elites do not split contrary to the predictions. So uh, the unfortunate truth is, uh, if you're looking at the situation with our eyes open, right, is that even if Russians were to take in this risk, which is, they will probably will, but not in sufficient numbers, I'd say, mm. it still does not uh, guarantee a change, uh, given that in the current international environment, and uh, given current back of China and essentially uh, this rise of this authoritarian trend, this dictators to stand power uh, using force and violence. Yeah, and we've we've seen it not just uh, in the Slavic world, but obviously as as we know in, in Venezuela, very similar situation. I don't want to end on such a potentially pessimistic note. Do you think that, okay, maybe Belarus is not what we should expect, where it's people taking to the to the streets? But could could you see major political change coming through elections, coming through voting, whether it's in 2021 in the parliamentary elections or maybe 2024? Is there room for electoral gains in Russia? It's a good question. Thank you for asking that, Matt. Again, the big question, uh, the big debate going on in Russia, people saying that, hey, this regime is not going to be removed electorally, which I agree with. But I still think, nonetheless, that as a political scientist, uh, that the evidence is overwhelming, that elections commonly create this sort of um, point which uh, triggers some kind of action on the opposition side. This is the reason why autocrats actually hate elections and try to eliminate them or decrease the numbers. The election solved the so-called collective action problem, right? There's a lot of uh, crazy things going on uh, in the country at every given moment, particularly is if we're talking about Russia. And it's sort of hard to understand which of the events is going to be a trigger. In certain cases, one seller in the streets burning himself, right, can, uh, can trigger a, a revolution. But the elections are a natural point which culminates sort of this uh, multiple disagreements and disenchantment and uh, contributes to the protest. This is why um, in, for example, post-Soviet space, we saw the scholar revolutions and typically around the time of the elections when the, the authorities uh, rig, rig them in order to continue in power. And just like something like that happened in Belarus as well. So yeah, I think the elections will not uh, be they will not result in a peaceful transfer of power, but they can uh, create this point uh, which uh, sort of triggers the public uh, expression of this protest and eventually lead to a certain type of change. So in this yeah. sense, 2021 election next year, the Federal Doom election, and of course 2024, as Ekaterina Shulman has suggested, are the major points uh, which will show the, the protest uh, propensity in the Russian society and the uh, and to what extent it, it's, it's able to uh, contribute to a change. Not to end on the negative point, right? But I also want to tell you that the positive uh, news to Belarus, uh, no matter how hard it is right now for them, and I have to say that I really admire the courage of this uh, people who continue streets despite being beaten. And, oh my gosh, absolutely. And, and horrendous um, examples of abuse. Things will get easier for them once uh, things start uh, change in Russia. So Russia uh, is very important for all of the space. Right now, unfortunately, it has this very negative effect on the continuity of this autocratic regimes. But once there's more democratic development, liberalization in Russia, it will definitely trigger fundamental change. 
across all of the region. And that's why it's so important to continue watching the dynamic in Russia. Well, I think that is an optimistic note. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a blast. We're going to continue to watch this closely. And, you know, we invite everybody to uh, follow Maria on social media. She posts really great stuff. So please be in touch, Maria. We'd love to have you back on, maybe even uh, in Russian sometime. Well, with pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thank you. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University 